Emerald Podcast Series. Research that makes a difference. Hello, I'm Charlie Swift. Emerald's Social Responsibility Journal and its sister journal, Technological Sustainability, are official journals of the Social Responsibility Research Network, SRRNet. SRRNet brings together scholars who are concerned with the social contract between all stakeholders in global society, and consequently with the socially responsible behaviour of organisations. Today's guests have contributed to one or both journals and are deeply invested in issues of sustainability and social responsibility. Taking a cue from David Crowther's recent article in Technological Sustainability, we'll be discussing the notion of technological myopia, and we'll be looking in detail at the development, application and ethics of technology in the context of sustainability. Our first guest is Professor David Crowther, who is speaking to us from the UK. Hello, uh, I'm David Crowther. I'm the founder and president of SRRNet. I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of Social Responsibility Journal. I'm on the editorial board of Technological Sustainability. We are also joined by Dr. Kurosh Garibagi in Australia. Hello, everyone. Yes, my name is uh, Kurosh Garibagi and I am an academic and a senior technical uh, advisor consultant. My background uh, lies within the uh, civil infrastructure, particularly green infrastructure, including green buildings and so on. Done a bit of research in that area and we have uh, quite a good uh, team going at the moment, both in academia as well as professionally, looking at different aspects of uh, sustainability, green infrastructure, green buildings, and so on. And by Professor Christian Kirkac in Croatia. Hello, uh, my name is Christian Kirkac. I'm professor at Zagreb School of Economics and Management. I am a member of uh, the same network. Also, I am an associate editor of the Social Responsibility Journal and a member of editorial board of Technological Sustainability Journal. My fields are mostly in corporate social responsibility, or should I say irresponsibility and sustainability, and also in philosophy and ethics. So I'm going to begin by putting the same question to each of you in turn. From your perspective, what does the term sustainability mean? David first. Well, the interesting thing about sustainability is there's no agreed upon definition of what it does mean. We generally talk about things like making sure that decisions made in the present don't affect the ability to make decisions in the future, which if you think about it is complete nonsense because every decision we make affects the future. And this has been going on for the last 50,000 years when early man started killing off the megafaun and that they affected the decisions that were available to us now. On the other hand, Nobody, I guess nobody really wants to kill megafauna now. We're quite happy to go down to the supermarket and buy our food instead. So I think we need to redefine what we mean by sustainability. Essentially, it's a future-oriented, and we need to make sure that the ability of people in the future to make decisions which are important to them is maintained. Thank you. Kurash, what's your view on this? Well, looking to civil infrastructure, you have the uh, 
three pillars of sustainability, which are the environmental, economical, and social. But we're looking at the more complex nature of the infrastructure projects, including green infrastructure, green buildings. We believe that the fourth dimension, which includes the technical aspects, um, which traditionally um, is considered to be sort of overlapping within the three areas, yeah, could be something as a separate pillar itself. That's quite important to separate that engineering uh, pillar, engineering aspect, because it will um, deal with um, sustainable uh, constructability design, structural performance, uh, particularly with the green innovative design processes, which are quite important in, uh, in, in the sort of today's climate. The emphasis on civil infrastructure, including new buildings, is taking a bit of a turn. Okay. We'll find out more about the um, pillars of sustainability in, in a moment. But uh, Christian, meanwhile, what does sustainability mean from your perspective? Thank you. Uh, well, since I was engaged not so much in corporate social responsibility, but in a negative term, in, in corporate social irresponsibility, I continue to do that uh, concerning sustainability. So I'm uh, trying to, to research what is not sustainable. And in effect, uh, uh, when, when, when I research mostly, mostly, not, not all, but mostly uh, the uh, natural and unnatural disasters that occur at least in the last, let's say, 30 or 40 years, uh, uh, I noticed that besides the fact that uh, number, magnitude, whatever feature it may be considered relevant uh, in such disasters, they are, uh, there are, let's say, four times more natural disasters of all types, relevant types, uh, uh, in the last 40 years. And concerning most of them, uh, uh, humans were perhaps not completely, but let's say almost completely unprepared for them. So uh, our solutions uh, 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 to take care uh, for people and environment before such disasters, especially in cases in which we can predict them with certain level on pro pro probability uh, uh, during the disasters and especially after them, uh, shows that we are, in this aspect, uh, completely unsustainable. So we are not prepared. For example, our our pr procedures uh, concerning humans, uh, uh, concerning societies, concerning cultures, concerning economies, uh, uh, political systems, I don't know, uh, are uh, are not, or Koroshil said, I, I believe more about that, uh, about our uh, architectural designs, are completely unprepared for disasters of the current magnitude, they occurred globally. So I'm not talking about some local small disasters. I'm talking about disasters which reflect on global, uh, social, political, economic, and other aspects of our of our societies. Okay, thank you, David. We've heard quick references there to the, the pillars of sustainability. Could you just define those for us clearly and 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 explain why they need to be considered equally? The three pillars of sustainability are the environmental, the economic, and the social. And the reason they need to be considered um, equal, and everybody agrees it considered equal, is that they balance each other. If we take action that affects the social, there's 
going to be an effect upon the economic and the environmental. If we take action about the environment, there's going to be an effect upon the social and the economic. They're not independent. Each affects the other. Well, what's what's important? Why I, th- why I think it's important to keep stressing the equal the um, equality of these pillars is that everybody accepts that these pillars are equal and then proceeds to ignore that and just deal with one pillar or at most two pillars and ignore the effects upon other pillars. Uh, And that's one of the problems we have when we start dealing with sustainability issues. Can you give an example of one pillar being attended to to the neglect of another? Yeah, okay. Um, Some years ago, um, a generation ago, I suppose, we started building dams as a way to uh, produce electricity uh, in an environmentally friendly way. And, yeah, it does that. It affects the, the social because... Um, power is more available. It affects the economic because it's a, an eff- effective way of doing this. But what we ignored was the effect upon the environment. So some years later, what we've discovered is that these dams damage the environment, the hinterland below the dam, and it has a serious effect upon nature, and therefore damages the environment. We can't we can't think of one pillar without the others. Okay. Now, you, you've coined the term technological myopia. What exactly is that, and, and why is it a problem in the context of sustainability then? Yeah, I, I see it as a problem that we assume, everybody assumes that technology and technological development is going to get us out of the problems we face and are going to address the issues of sustainability. Well, technology is a tool nothing more than a tool. How we use it or don't use it or make best use of it will impact sustainability. It's our actions that affect sustainability. Technology is nothing more than a tool and it's not necessarily the best approach to invent some more technology to deal with one problem and ignoring its effect on one of the other pillars like I've just kind of explained. We're myopic about technology. We see it as a solution. It's not a solution. It's at all the only solutions come from us and what we do or don't do. Thank you. That's really clear. I was also reminded of, um, I think it's the UK government's net zero strategy, which they unveiled a few weeks ago. It was very reliant on future tech that they were assuming would come along in time, for example, to deal with nuclear waste processing or carbon capture and so on. It's kind of hopeful but not very realistic. Basically, it's laziness. We think the next generation will solve the problems we create just as we're stuck with solving the problems created by our parents and grandparents. And that's not just lazy, it's irresponsible, isn't it? Kurosh, um, you've spoken about um, infrastructure. Infrastructure stays with us for a long time. So the skyscrapers we build now, future generations are either going to curse us for or thank us for. You're both an academic and a practitioner in engineering, and your, and your paper recently has been pr- produced with your practitioner colleagues, and you've combined these worlds in your work around green design. How do the three pillars of sustainability and the concepts of technological myopia play out for you? Yes, um, in the context of the green buildings in particular, um, it's a bit difficult because 
we find that the the construction industry is continuously on the move uh, to have better design, better green building design, more energy efficiency structures, and so on. And one thing that uh, we have noticed from industry perspective organization is that, for example, to put things in, in, a, in a context where we have six-star energy rating at the moment, already starting to think about the seven and eight-star eight energy ratings, which, again, um, it could be sort of a small increments in terms of making the buildings more energy efficient. But nonetheless, it's the complicated in terms of applying those uh, specific processes. To put it in a perspective, things, for example, we have structural performance, which is obviously need to be sort of a calculated established in terms of the uh, design, the building design. So you would have all these policies that are saying that, the, that the, you've got to use more lighter, more greener materials. But how are those lighter, greener materials will impact the structural capability of the structures? So that's where the actual practitioners in themselves need to have a considerable thinking about the application of green buildings and greener materials and resources. And there's also the economic side of it, that is um, how costly these uh, sort of uh, newer processes are um, to, to sort of uh, upheld in these design aspects. So all of that comes in under the additional cost, additional um, manpower yeah, you, you need to consider. So there's a, there would be a barrier to improving green design just from how complex it is and how it demands people to think in a different way. Definitely. Yeah, so it, people are only getting over that because they have to? It, it, exactly, and the, a lot of these architects or, or you know, the building surveyors also need to have um, be sort of re-educated in, in, in a higher certification uh, programs so that they are aware of the requirements that they need to be, you know, to be mindful during the design stage of, the, of these green buildings. And all of that creates a bit of a unwillingness, if that's the right word, um, from the industry's perspective. It may not be straightforward to be, to, to apply. Very interesting. Christian, you, you think of a loss in, in your, with your philosophical perspective about paradoxes, I, I believe. Can you talk about that a little, paradoxes in sustainability? Uh, yes, thank you. I can uh, I can summarize a series or a variety of, of, of various paradoxes that occur. Some of them are, they can be divided in various ways. Some of them are theoretical or, if I may say, conceptual. Uh, and this is not conceptual in terms only of, of I mean, logical, whatever formal, but conceptual in terms of making a, a conception of something. So understanding the situation in which one finds himself or herself. Uh, for example, before, during, or after uh, a, a disaster. The, 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 the practical or, or empirical paradoxes occur concerning, uh, uh, again, variety of features which define particular disasters in terms of their type, of their magnitude, and similar. And of course, uh, we have a, a series a series of paradoxes which are related to uh, human actions, which is extremely interesting, uh, because uh, in cases in 
multiple uh, simultaneous uh, uh, natural and unnatural disasters combined, sometimes uh, people find themselves extremely confused. In the last few years, we had a series of examples with uh, 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 some relevant human laws because human uh, people didn't understood what they should do in practical situations during uh, uh, such disasters. For example, paradoxes or contradictions arose because they didn't understand what they should do uh, concerning, the, 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 for example, a flood in which they found themselves. And in the same time, uh, there was a high risk because these people were old. Uh, they, they could get infected by uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 or uh, COVID-19 disease, and uh, they didn't know what to do. Or, for example, we have some traditional ways of dealing with such multiple simultaneous natural and unnatural disasters, but only in globally known hotspots. For example, in Asia, we have uh, 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 habits developed uh, even in, uh, in children. They are trained to act reasonably and according to standard procedures. They're, they're, they're experienced, they know what to do, they're prepared. But given that uh, such disasters or hotspots, in fact, are getting larger and uh, they pop up on different, on new uh, new regions globally, uh, most of the people, or there is a rise of percentage of people who found themselves in such paradoxes, practical, conceptual, whatever, uh, and they do not know what to do, how to act. So these are the types of, of, of paradoxes or contradictions that I'm trying to deal uh, concerning the unsustainability, in fact, as I said previously, because people are not, not prepared or as mentioned before by others, I'm not so sure that our infrastructure, uh, urban zones, whatever, big cities are prepared. We can we, we, we may talk about, for example, big cities in Europe, in uh, Northern America, whatever, even in Japan uh, or in Asia, but we have thousands of cities which are few, I mean, much bigger than average city in Europe, in South America, in Africa, in Southeast Asia, which are completely unprepared for the magnitude of natural and unnatural disaster that could occur, or there is some kind of uh, probability that they will occur in next, for example, decades. So we should think in these terms if we want to minimize this level of assist unsustainability, or not only of our actions, but also of our environment. This is extremely important. So it is, it is, it is myopia, as David uh, says. But I'm, I'm also pointing to to another positive feature of myopia because you see clearly objects which are close and objects which are far away from you see blurred. This is the the phenomenon. Okay. Now perhaps sometimes it is good to see uh, far away objects blurred. Because then you see the whole picture, you see the, the big form, you see the morphology of the situation in some far away and quite big region. You see the problem. So interesting. So you, you don't get bogged down in the detail. You see the overall shape. If I could go back to you, Kurosh, obviously you're talking from Australia. You're talking about ever increasing higher standards of building design that people must meet. And Christian's pointed out that so much of the world 
is way behind on this front. Do you have a sense of how the profession of engineering or how the certificating bodies around the world are sharing this knowledge to help those who are less prepared? Well, uh, there are uh, specific bodies um, uh, for individual nations that actually oversees these standards in place. And they do share ideas. Um, we did a uh, research a while back that we undertook um, the examination in Australia. It was lacking in terms of um, keeping up to the UK particularly. And this is, again, uh, could be just something that uh, we picked up based on those case studies. But what we found was uh, because uh, Australia is quite a large country in size and it has a different uh, climate um, and when you're talking about having a green building design, it doesn't mean that you know it may be actually suited for one zone, but it may not be very very suited for different zones. Like for it may be quite good for sort of a more um, type of wet climate, but not so good for um, dry sort of areas. We we do have have uh, instrumentation such as like passive design things like that that's looks into local climate and maintaining a comfortable conditions or temperature within the home. But nonetheless, I also think that these these type of uh, regulations need to be more flexible and they need to be have more sort of a leniency in terms of uh, allowing the the states at sort of a lower level have more inputs r- rather than federal federally having a significant input. And this is the difficulty that we're finding in here in Australia with that, and particularly in carbon reduction policies that federal governments have in place, making sure that the cities are reducing less and less um, carbon oxide and that sort of thing. But the condition of these cities is also quite important to take note of. So just because a particular green structure works very well, for example, say in Melbourne, it doesn't necessarily mean that it works very well the same way, say in Perth. But nonetheless, uh, we find that within Australia, particularly, that federal government have a lot, have, have a lot to say in terms of um, setting these uh, green uh, policies in place that the, the country as Australia needs to follow. Um, I might ask this question, actually, of, of all of you from your different perspectives now. David, from yours, what role would you say corporations have to play in terms of sustainability and technology as opposed to governments? I think every Every person, every organisation, which includes all corporations and all governments, have to address sustainability and have a role to play in addressing that sustainability. In terms of corporations, much of the technological development will come from these corporations. But the question everybody needs to ask is, do we need new technology? Is that the way to address the problem or what is the best solution to the problems we're facing and we develop technology if we need to do so but it's not an automatic let's go to technology to provide answers but corporations certainly have a big role to play here just as governments and individual people do. Christian what's your view? Here I would like to say I would like to agree with David that okay corporations are among major drivers and governments, ministries, whatever, because they have resources uh, to find practical solutions for various sustainability issues, problems, in fact. But uh, here again, uh, uh, I'm seeing 
uh, I, I saw that a few days ago it is a published the, the the book is published about about the relation of sustainability development goals and artificial intelligence so this is this is a, some kind of buzzword these days okay chat gpt this or that and and everybody writes something about it how it is important and it entered the sustainability topic as well so i i, I hear again i see a kind of a kind of paradox i mean we had such historical examples we tend to to give our technology some features to to, to address to, to 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 describe it as it has some kind of features which actually it cannot have for example it is almost a century ago when there was a huge uh, debate about for example uh, uh, uses of radio uses of radio it was a discussion in the united states and everybody was uh, engaged in discussion politicians engineers scientists business people general population scientists whatever and it said it was said that it is a big revolution it will bring i don't know what peace on earth uh, it will uh, it will it will bring cultures and civilizations i don't know nations together and peace will be achieved etc etc uh, however nothing happens okay uh, it had some advantages and disadvantages and that that was it again in i think around 50s mid 50s perhaps it was the same the same thing repeated uh, concerning the television because i mean there was a major use among general populations of tvs in in households something around 85 90 even percent uh, uh, had uh, the tv and uh, during the 70s and the 80s the same discussion repeated concerning i don't know personal computers then later on about internet about this or that and now it repeats uh, with artificial intelligence i mean we have to be realistic here or even if i may say pragmatic okay there is nothing nothing spiritual whatever in, in technology in solutions okay this is as david says simply a tool which could help to a certain degree and that's it we shouldn't be giving i don't know powers to such technology which it cannot have by its nature by its essence okay this is it but we tend to do that we simply tend to do that and this creates a false kind of misinterpretation or misunderstanding of the possibilities of use of uh, such new new technologies or for example uh, on the other hand of the misuse as well as well so uh, we shouldn't do that this is also a kind of paradox if not some kind of irony yes it's almost a sort of passive um expectation that this magical device or software will do something of its own accord that is good or the fear what it might do that we don't want it to do the internet similarly i think when people were creating social media and the internet they were thinking free access to all knowledge and making connections but some some people see actually uh, more negative active players behind all of these creations where somebody all along had a negative intention yeah i, I mean to be on the safe side if i may add some technology really helped for example during the covid 19 pandemic uh, some social networks were used by medical doctors all, all around the world in order to communicate in a fast way so they have some closed groups 
and they uh, communicate to each other concerning the various symptoms, uh, uh, procedures, this or that, what they should do with certain types of patients, because it was too slow to publish their results in, in scientific papers. It would take too, too long to, uh, to, to read to everything. I mean, this has to be published, it has to be structured, etc. We all know how it is, the procedure of publishing the results. And they have these closed groups, also various social networks, I don't want to mention them, and they communicate very fast. And this technology, in fact, helped to save thousands of lives during the pandemic. So there are positive sides, and but also there are negative sides. As you said, I mean, I don't know. It is fun that to use social networks, for example, but oh, okay, it can help economy, it can help this or that, but we must admit that there is some kind of, it's less, it, I mean, psychologists told us this, that there is some kind of social isolation. Uh, criminologists tell us there is uh, a huge amount of uh, cyber criminal, etc. So there are a series of, of negative negative effects. But all things comes with positives, pluses and minuses. I mean, this is how it is. Yes. D- David, um, this may be too big a question. But what, what is your opinion of AI in the context of sustainability? Oh, I'm just listening to, to that last conversation, what Christian had to say. It seems to me we're back to people again. All technology has the potential for good and for bad according to how we use it. It's not the technology, it's what we do with the technology that's important. And that's the bit we're not actually addressing. Uh, and, and certainly in terms of AI, people think yeah, we dichotomize. It's either good, it's going to solve all our problems, or it's bad, it should be banned. It's not. It's a bit of both according to what we do. There is a place for AI, but although, although personally, I think we need to re- redefine what we mean by intelligence because what machines do is not intelligence. It's extrapolation from previous examples, not inventing anything new. But there's a role, but we, we choose how we use that in our in our lives, and that's the bit we're not actually willing to do, make the choice ourselves. It's our responsibility, not technology's responsibility. And when you say ourselves, does that include the individual? Yeah, absolutely. What sort of choices m- might we be able to make? I think sometimes we, we fear we don't have the choice. That's a cop-out, basically, isn't it? We've all got our choices because we all passively accept what's happening and choose not to do anything about it. But you, you've seen, we've all seen the power of protest, how it can bring about change uh, if we're not happy, but we're too passive about it. Kurosh, thinking about green design there, we've, we've said governments are leading the way with tighter regulations and encouraging higher standards. Are there grassroots demands for this as well? Do you see? Well, it is. I mean, we try to make our lives easier. And going back to what our colleague was just talking about in terms of AI, artificial intelligence, the aim of such uh, these tools is to make things more straightforward and less labor intensive. So, going back to construction industry, if I may, um, we are using uh, some artificial intelligence, also at, at, at the sort of a, a small scale, but the whole of the idea of using artificial intelligence or technology, technology um, sort of a focus in construction is to make productivity higher, so improve the productivity level. 
So going back to your question that he was asking about these standards that are set aside by the governments, that's the whole idea behind these standards and regulations to make um, the construction industry um, more sort of a responsive to the ever change to ever changing demands of the occupants of, of the of the users of the of these buildings. Now, in saying that, then obviously you know it's good to put these policies in place, but then you also need to provide support for these organisations. Otherwise, it's going to be very difficult to monitor um, and besides certification, sort of an approval process. But if you really want to be successful in applying green building and green design and that sort of thing, it's got to be taken up by the industry, construction industry, sort of a, if you could uh, look at it at a more voluntary basis rather than enforced. Um, that's what we're finding at, at the, at the, you know, at the sort of a ground zero, if you want to call it that, that, you know, when things are enforced, it's more, we just do it because we have to do it. So therefore, there won't be much of a long-term motivation that they just do it in terms of, you know, getting from the next milestones and finally handing over the building. But it's got to be more done in a cohesive way. And that is, uh, I mean, they do it to some extent involve some big organizations to be part of these standards, uh, establishment of these standards and always seeing the standard. But nonetheless, uh, in terms of actually monitoring how the, the construction industry sees these tight, restrictive regulations, I think it's got to be more um, a sort of balanced approach rather than just this is it and you just do what we told it to do. That's great. Finally, if if I just ask for a short answer from you each, if I start with Christian, when you look to the future, are you optimistic or pessimistic about what you see? Well, it depends. How well do I see? Well, for example, I'm wearing glasses, so I don't see very well. There are some estimations um, about, uh, and I know some preliminary data concerning uh, natural and probably unnatural disasters as well. At the, by the end of the 2020s, the, the, the rise of natural and unnatural disasters will be higher than last 40 years. Uh, second second point, uh, the, the, the hotspots of such disasters will spread around the world in some new areas unknown before for such events, relevantly high probability. And of course, the last thing that the magnitude of such disasters will be much bigger. So it's not about optimism, in my opinion, or pessimism. We should think about what we can do as individuals, as small groups, as, I don't know, group of friends or family, whatever, local community, to contribute to make this region in which we live, in which we act daily, to leave it as at least a bit better than we found it. David, I'll give you the, the final word in, in a sec, Kurosh, if I could just ask your description of things almost grinding to a halt with development in, in green design because it's, it's so expensive and it's so demanding and your sense that people are feeling coerced rather than enthusiastic about meeting these standards. How optimistic are you about us getting over that hump? I think that I am optimistic in the sense that there, I can see why this is taking place. 
And there's definitely the need for that, uh, these green buildings and so on. I mean, we are we do need to reduce our carbon dioxide footprint. We really need to re reduce that. But it's got to be done at a more smaller increment and involving more additional um, stakeholders, not just key stakeholders. The more stakeholders you will use, the better the public will realize the advantages of these additional hurdles that they need to go over, for example, in constructing these buildings, right, in the long term. David, a final word from you. Anything you would like to add? Okay, well, wasn't it Einstein who said that he didn't know how the next war would be fought, but the one after would be fought with bows and arrows? So what he, he's suggesting is what we do affects what the future will look like. Now, I'm not suggesting there is going to be or is not going to be any wars, but I am suggesting, no, more than suggesting, I'm stating that the future will not be a continuation of the present. It will be different. And will we be happy with the, the future? Well, I, I think those of us who are optimistic will be happy, and those of us who are pessimistic will be unhappy. The reality is, of course, it's a mixture of good and bad. The future. The present is a mixture of good and bad. The future will be a mixture of good and bad, but it will definitely be different to a continuation of the present. And you've all emphasised that we, we all have a part to play in that future. Our mission is to find it, I guess. On that note, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For more information about our guests, and for links to their most recent publications with Emerald Publishing, as well as a transcript of today's conversation, please see our show notes on our website. I'd like to thank Daniel Ridge and the studio This Is Distorted. Thank you. Thank you.